some of us have minds that just, that's, they just forget, you know. Um, I'll tell you a quick story. In high school, was, uh, we had football practice, and my sister's demanding my, uh, to come out there right away, so, because we drove to school every day. She's like, I can't find your car. I'm like, well, it's out in the parking lot. Well, I can't find it. I looked everywhere. And my tennis racket's in there, and I have a tennis match. And my friends used to love to play practical jokes on me, so I'm like, okay, they hid my car. And I go out there, can't find it anywhere. And I go into the locker room, and I'm yelling at my teammates, like, guys, this isn't funny anymore. My sister needs her tennis racket. And then finally, one of the guys is like, dude, I rode with you to Burger King at lunchtime. Oh my goodness, I totally rode back from Burger King with somebody else. <laughs> and then, this morning, <laughs> a high school football teammate of mine, who I hadn't seen literally since high school, was at church this morning. So when I forget my sermon, it's like, yeah, that's, that's Rod. <laughs> totally. So anyway, all right, let's uh, go to Exodus 19. Happy New Year, by the way. We ready for this new year? Okay, Exodus 19, we're going to look at the first part of this this morning. Um, Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. If you have a Bible like mine, it's on page 53. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings, and how I brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words you are to speak, Moses, to the Israelites. So Moses went back and he summoned the elders and the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him to speak. The Lord all responded together. We do. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. And then Moses said to the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord then said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day because on that day, the Lord God will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. This is God's word. You can be seated. Okay, so uh, Israel, God has gotten Israel out of Egypt, and they have now been in the desert, not wandering, but uh, God met them there. God is leading them, shepherding them there. They've been there for approximately 40 days. They've been tested three times. Now they come to Mount Sinai, which is also called what in the Bible? Mount Horeb, or a lot of times it's just called the Mountain of the Lord. In fact, this is the mountain where 
God, or if you see it the way I see it, Jesus first introduces himself to Moses. Remember the whole burning bush thing? And this was God's plan all along. It was to get his people out of Egypt so he could bring his people to this place. And that's why what we just read, whether you know it or not, is one of the most dramatic events in the whole Bible. And they brought, God brought them for, to this place for what reason? See, now if we know our story, we say, well, this is where God is going to give them the law. But that's not the primary reason why God brought them out of Egypt and is bringing them to this place. He's bringing them to this place for marriage, for a wedding ceremony. And you, we can go all the way back to Exodus 6, to the burning bush incident where, where God shows up and, and speaks to Moses and really lays out a wonderful declaration of intent. Because there he says, okay, I'm going to do four things for Israel. I'm going to free her. I'm going to deliver her. I'm going to redeem her with my outstretched arm. And then I'm going to take her to myself. And of course, take is biblical language for Mary. So now they arrive at Sinai. God comes down on this mountain. Moses goes up the mountain. Moses is this 80-year-old man. This will be one of four treks up that mountain. And this is why when I take people to Israel, I love to go down to the Sinai region where we find a mountain. They don't know where Sinai is today, really. So um, any mountain in that region could be it. And I find a pretty tall one. We climb it, we hike it, because... I want people to know this, like what this is and what this feels like. We learn with our feet. Moses is going to do this four times. Up the mountain, down the mountain. Up the mountain, down the mountain. On Moses' first meeting with God, God just kind of recaps what's transpired since the last time Moses and he met um, at this place. And look at verse 4 of chapter 19. You yourselves, says God, have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagle wings, and now how I took you. That's how it really literally reads, how, how I took you, or am taking you. In other words, Moses, say to the people, go down and tell them, do you see what I have done? Do you see how I have defended you? I fought for you, how I even cared for you, gave my life for you, so that I could take you to take to take you as my bride. Basically, what God is doing here is um, he's getting down on one knee and he is asking Israel, Israel, will you be my bride? Verses 9 to 11, then... Show us the bride's answer. Look at those verses. Moses comes down with this proposal. And actually, verse 8, the people all responded together, we do. So Moses goes back to God with their answer. And then God says, okay, tell them in three days there's going to be a wedding and let the bride prepare herself. And what I want us to see here is that God didn't just bring 
Israel to Sinai to save them. He's already done that. He brought them to this place to marry them. In fact, uh, many of the parables that existed around the time of Jesus that are still in written form, there's, there's over 2,000 of them. Many of them uh, go something like this. They, they, they kind of tell this story that there once was a princess who was captured by bandits and in her distress a king comes along and sees the sad princess and rescues her and takes her to his palace to betroth her and of course in this parable who is the king it's god and who are the bandits egypt pharaoh who's the princess Israel and the palace, Sinai. And see, the Bible is many things. We understand it to be many things. But first and foremost, the Bible is a story. It's a love story. It's the story of a lover who is smitten with love for his people. And that lover is the Lord and creator of the universe. And God made this world for love. God made his people for love. In fact, throughout the scripture, you see this, how God's relationship to Israel is likened to a husband and a bride. Jeremiah 2 and 3. Hosea, the first three chapters. Ezekiel 16. Isaiah 54 verse 5. And I'm just scratching the surface. God picks Israel to be his bride. Now, that doesn't mean that each individual Israelite is a bride to God. But collectively, as a people, they are picked to be God's bride. Now, being picked, being selected, being chosen. um, We've all had experiences with this, right? I mean, I remember growing up on the playground and Every noon hour, we'd play some sport, and every sport involved two teams, and every kid got picked, and you knew if you were the first pick, or the second pick, or the third pick, or the last pick. Libby told me that when she was a little girl, six and seven years old, um, her dad would put her into bed at night, and a lot of times he would say to her, now Libby, if God could line up all the six-year-olds in the whole world, just Line them all up. Do you know who your dad would pick? If he had one pick, he'd pick you. Of course, I've had to compete with that my whole life. (laughs) That's powerful. It's powerful to be picked, especially when it is someone of great importance and when that person of great importance is is picking you to do an important thing. Now imagine if the one who's picking you, choosing you, selecting you, is the God of the universe. If you're wondering why the Jewish people throughout the centuries have had this certain kind of swagger that almost borders on cockiness, it, it, it's this, it, at, at, at the core of their being, they understand that they've been picked. That God picked us. It's verse 5, out of all the nations on the earth, Israel, I choose you. 
You are my treasured possession. In fact, we've talked about this word treasured possession before. In Hebrew, it's the Hebrew word segulah. Because in the ancient world, segulah is something that a bride and groom would give to each other at their wedding. It was their, their most prized possession that they would give to their spouse. And in giving it, what they were saying to their spouse is, you now have become my segulah, my most prized possession. And really, this practice was really only done by the wealthy or the, or the royalty because to do this, you had to be a person of means with, with great possessions. And so really, this was really the practice of royalty, namely great kings and rulers who owned everything. And what they would do is they would set aside something as their most prized possession. In the New Testament, it would be called the pearl of great price. It's that thing that when you behold it, that you'll sell everything, you'll even risk your very life to have it. And see, this is what God is saying about his bride. Though the whole earth is mine, I own it all. You, Israel, are my segula, my pearl of great price. Or to use the language of Lord of the Rings, my precious. And God's willing to do anything. He's willing to give up anything to get her. Now here's where we have to ask this question, why Israel? I mean, why did God pick her? And if you haven't been married yet, um, and, and, and someday you're thinking about get, getting married, you might want to listen up to what I'm about to say right now, because one of the things that you learn quickly in marriage um, after you've been together a few years and you know each other pretty well, uh, your wife will come to you as Olivia's come to me and she'll say, no, Rod, do you love me? I'm like, of course, Olivia, I love you. Next question. Why do you love me? And see, this is where those of you who are single right now, you, you, you have to be really careful on, on how you answer that question. Because it's so easily easy to just say, well, well, Libby, I love you because um, you're stunningly beautiful. I, I, I love you because you're talented. I love you because you're, you're smart. I love you because you're the wind beneath my wings. I mean, and she is all that to me. But here's the problem in saying those kind of things. What happens if she loses some of those things? What happens if some of those qualities go away? And really, the, the best thing any husband could say to their bride is, I love you, Libby, simply because I love you, because I love you. And see, in Deuteronomy 7 and 9, God actually says to Israel this, these very words. He says, I love you. I have placed my affection on you. And, and, and then he explains why. And he says, it's not because you were better than everybody. It's not because you were more righteous than everybody. It's not because you were greater than everybody. In fact, it was really quite the opposite. I love you because I love you because I love you. In fact, when you look at our story up until this point in Exodus, let me just ask this question. What has Israel done up until this point to get God's affection? 
What? Nothing. They've done nothing to get God's favor. It's all God and his grace. You can even fast forward to the New Testament and ask yourself, well, well, what did the disciples do to get Jesus to pick them? And you see the same thing. They did absolutely nothing. In fact, many of these guys are the least of the least. Matthew himself is a tax collector. And this is why when I hear people say today that that we need to do this and we need to do more of this, and, and if we do this, that we'll get God's favor. We'll get God to just bless us and to like us and to do all these things for us. When I hear this kind of stuff, I kind of cringe because, yes, it sounds good. It appeals to our religious hearts because we think if we would just pray more or fast more or give more or, or perform better, that then God will accept us, like us, set his affection upon us. I'm going to tell you something. This is not the God of the New Testament, nor is the God of the Old Testament. God loves us because he loves us. Because he loves us. And God is a lover who comes across all worlds to find his bride so that he can rescue her and swoop her into his arms so that he can redeem her. Not because the bride is so good, but because he is so good. And see, that's the whole story of the Bible. And this is why this story is called gospel. It's gospel. Now, in the culture of this time, when a man would get engaged, what he had to do is draw up a formal contract that basically spelled out the responsibilities of the husband and wife. Things like, okay, what's the bride price here? What's the dowry going to be? What are the things that the bride must do? What are the things that the groom must do? What are her obligations? What are his obligations? Um, and, And so it was kind of a contract, but don't completely think about it the way we think about contract today, because it was so much more than just a formal agreement. This is what's called a covenant. And covenants were done for the sole purpose of relationship. For the purpose of, of, of binding two people or two parties intimately together. Because at the heart of covenant is the total giving of one's life to that other person. And see, that's what God is inviting Israel to enter. And so God, as the husband, is formally laying out the terms. And these terms are what we might call today the wedding vows. So look at verse 5. God says, Now if you obey me fully and you keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. These are the terms. Bride, on your end, what I want you to do is I want you to obey my voice. And I want you to keep your vows. In fact, this word for obey in verse 5 is actually the Hebrew word shema. Shema means what? Hear. Listen. Hear, O Israel. To hear in Hebrew also means to obey. And what is it that this bride is to obey? Well, at this point, it's not even spelled out yet. They don't even know. But what I still like is verses 7 and 8. 
their response. So Moses uh, summoned the, the elders and set before them the words of the Lord. And the people responded together, all of them together, we do. <laughs> and so at that moment, the engagement is set and the wedding finger goes on the girl's hand. It's not until the next chapter that now God lays out what they are to obey. It's what Christians call the Ten Commandments. In fact, look at chapter 20. My subheading says the Ten Commandments. What are the Ten Commandments? We call this the law. At least my whole life, that's, that, that's what it is. And, and I think most Christians have a rather low opinion of the law because to us, the law is that part of the Bible that Jesus made obsolete, even though Jesus said I didn't come to abolish the law. And anyone who teaches uh, that, I, that, that these commandments are no longer valid will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. We think the law is the part of God's plan that kind of failed. This, this is the part that didn't really work out that well. To us, we, we think of the law as legalism. We, we, we think of the law as this heavy burden that, that's been placed on people's shoulders. But see, I, I think it's important for us to know that maybe what Christians would call legalism or a heavy burden is the same very thing that causes a Jew to dance or to sing when they hear it or they read it. Because to them, this is a marriage, and the Ten Commandments are our wedding vows. I don't know if you've ever seen the Ten Commandments in that light, but that's the context. Let me push this a little bit further. I, I would like to think that most of us in this room have fallen in love. Think about what you do when you fall in love with somebody. You start to do some research, right? I mean, you become a student of that person. You, you, you do everything t- you can to find out what it is that they like, what it is that they don't like. You, you learn what makes them happy. You learn what makes them sad. And, and then all of a sudden you find that you are conforming your behavior to, to who they are. And you start to live in, in accordance to their likes, to their dislikes. And why do you do this? Because their happiness becomes your happiness. And their being joyful becomes your joy. And I want you to see that when we do this, that it, all we're doing is we're submitting to who that person is. And we shouldn't be thinking of this as duty or, or obligation. That stuff doesn't even cross our mind. And see, that's what God's law is. It's, it's God's expression of himself. It's, it's his expression of his heart and his character, of his person, his personalities. It's the expression of his likes and his dislikes and his ways. And see, this is why the psalmist delights in God's laws. It's because he first delights in God. It's why the psalmist lifts up his hands to God's decrees because he first lifts up his hands to God. It's why he delights in God's Torah, his laws more than riches because his soul first delights in God, his husband. Ask yourself right now, what, what, what would a marriage be without vows? What would your marriage be without vows? Vows. 
I mean, every, every marriage I do, I hear vows. In fact, it, for me now in this ceremony, that, that, that is the, the highlight of the whole deal. When these two people turn and take each, each other's hands and face each other, and they make vows. Vows of submission, vows of obedience, vows of, of, of laying uh, their life down. Because as someone who's been married for, for 20 years now, I, I can say it's not a good sex life that keeps us married. It's not romantic creativity that, 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 that makes our marriage. It's, it's our vows. And the keeping of our vows to the other person that form the substance of our marriage. And what the vows do is lay out why this relationship is different than all my other relationships. In fact, I've yet to hear a spouse speak their vows with this sense of drudgery. I mean, there's delight. Sometimes there's tears of joy. In fact, the wedding I did recently, I got so enraptured in these vows that I literally forgot to do the rings. And uh, we got that fixed, but it's one of those moments again. Um, <laughs> see, and what we see as, as almost a heavy burden was act- an actual delight to Israel. Listen to the psalm. These are throughout the, found throughout the Psalms, and this is really just scratching the surface, but those who delight in the law of the Lord and who meditate on his law day and night, that person will be like a tree planted by streams of water. And blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delight in his commands. I rejoice in following your statues as one rejoices in great riches. I delight in your decrees. Your statues are my delight. They are my counselors. Direct me in the path of your con- commands. For there I will find delight, for I delight in your commands, because I love them. I reach out for your commands, which I love, that I may meditate on your decrees. I delight in your law. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for they have preserved my life. Can your heart say that today? About God's laws? He's caused you to delight. I mean, just love him. Or can you say what the psalmist, uh, as he says in Psalm 19, your law is perfect. It's perfect. Revive me, my soul. Just listen to the Ten Commandments in light of the context of, of, of these being wedding vows. First of all, the Ten Commandments start with what? God's saying, I saved you. It's not about salvation. That's already been done. This is about because you're saved and because you're in a marriage. You shall have no other gods before me. That's God saying in this marriage... There are no other lovers. I'm a jealous God. I love you with a spousal love. No graven images. I don't even want any pictures of other lovers. Remember the Sabbath. I want to have a date night. I want to have a day where it's just you and me, where you unplug from your world. 
I don't want to have to compete with, with, with that screen. I don't want to have to compete with, with, with your laptop. I don't want to compete with your work, your work or your cell phone. Day where it's just you and me. Don't take my name in vain. <laughs> this is a marriage. I'm giving you my name. Wear my name well. Represent my name in everything you say and do. And see, this is why as God's bride, God says you are to be holy. And what holy literally means, it means to be set apart. Israel's God's bride is to be set apart. They're set apart to be like God. They're set apart to reflect God to the world. In fact, in Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 to 8, God God says, when you follow my commands and you live out my statutes, the nations around are going to look at you and say, wow, what kind of God is that that they serve? I would say with the possible exception of the United States, Israel is the only nation in history ever to have had a mission statement. Because all other nations are, are, are usually defined in terms of language or geography or history or politics. But Israel is defined by its relationship to God and its mission to the world. God says you are to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? Priests put God on display. Pre-show the world what God is like. This is why Israel is to be a holy nation because their mission is to put God on display for the world to see and know God. See, God's looking for a partner. He's looking for a spouse who together can unleash God's redemption to every person in every square inch of the world he loves. And remember, these, these Israelites are not brides as individuals, but collectively as a people, they're the bride of God. So how as a nation are they to reflect God and bear God's name and reflect God's character? And see, this is why God gives them the law because it spells out to them. God says, I'm holy. And I want you to be holy as I am holy. Do not murder Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not covet. Honor your father and your mother. (laughs) This is who God is. This is God's heart. This is God's character. These are the things that God likes and the things that he dislikes. And I'm going to say something right now. God doesn't change. And see, through this law, God is saying, this is who I am. Love the things that I love. Love the things that are important to me. Do you know what's important to God? Do you know his law? A lot of Christians don't even know where the Ten Commandments are found. I'll tell you a verse that Dan Mike gave me this week that was wrecking me in a good way. So it applies to this. Let me just find it. I have it written down. It's, it's Proverbs. It's Proverbs 12, verse 4. A wife of noble character is her husband's crown. Thank you, God, for my wife. Mm. But a disgraceful wife is like decay to his bones. We can apply that here. Let's apply it here. 
Are we a wife to our husband, a wife of noble character? It's why God says, be holy as I am holy. It's why God says, okay, you want me to spell out holiness for you? I'll do it. Here's my law. Now, what does this mean for us? And I want to wrap this thing up with, with, with two things that I think are pretty significant. And the first thing that we have to do is connect this to us. And there's a lot of complexity to this, but let's start with 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. I mean, I read this text in the, in, in the New Testament, I get giddy. Because this is what it says. This is Peter talking to Christians. He says, but you are a chosen people. God picked you. A royal priesthood. A kingdom of priests. A holy nation. God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness. He called you out of Egypt. Into his wonderful light. Into himself. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once you were not a people. But now you are God's people, a people belonging to God. In fact, in the original language, uh, a people belonging to God, that phrase belonging to God most literally translates treasured possession. And see, now all of a sudden, we are right back into Exodus 19, which in other words, Peter is saying, all the things that God was saying about Israel at Exodus 19, that God picked them. That God entered a covenant of marriage with them. They were God's segula. Peter's saying, this is true for you, Christian. This is where we do have to ask, how how, how can this be? Because as Paul says in Ephesians 2, he says, Gentiles, which is us, non-Jews, we are excluded from citizenship in Israel. We're outside of Israel. We're foreigners to the covenants, to this covenant of promise, of marriage. Which is why the Gentiles without hope and without God in the world. That's bad news. And before I take it to the good news, I want us to know it's not like God replaces one bride, Israel, for another bride, the church. It's not like it's like, okay, Israel, kick you to the curb. You were no good, and now all of a sudden I'm going to marry this bride. It's not even that God's a polygamist, that he's like, okay, I have this bride, but now I want this bride too. It's a very complex issue. But here's what the gospel is, is that through Jesus, we Gentiles are brought in. Or as Paul says in Romans, we are grafted into Israel. We are grafted into the bride. God makes his proposal to us through In fact, listen how Paul puts this in Ephesians 2. He says, remember at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope, without God in the world. But, I mean, he shatters that that bad news with, with gospel. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away, you have been brought in through his blood. And this is why Jesus at communion lifts the 
a lineup and says, this is the blood of the new covenant. It's literally Jesus getting on one knee and saying to us, because of the life I lived and the death I died in your place, will you marry me? And here's the awesome reality. The God of the universe through Christ picks you. It's like Libby as a little girl. My hero, my champion, he picked me. God through Jesus picks us. Ephesians 1 verse 4, in Christ... We were chosen, and we were chosen for marriage. This is why Paul, at the, at, at later in, in, in Ephesians, he's, he calls husbands. He says, all right, husbands, I want you to love your bride in the same way Christ loves his bride, the church. So here's my question. Are you today in the marriage? How do we say to our groom, we do? How do we tell God we love him? And that hasn't changed. The way we show our love to God is through obedience. Obedience to what? His commands. What are his commands? Well, Exodus 20 is a pretty good place to start. And if you want to know how to walk those commands out, read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, because that whole sermon is Jesus' interpretation and application of these commands. In fact, if you want them all boiled down into like some real simple idea, Jesus even does that for you. He says, I can boil all the commands down with one word, Shema. Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel, love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. I gotta add one more piece because it can't just go that way. Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says the same thing in, in, in Romans 13 and Galatians. He says the whole fulfillment of the law is love. And again, as we talk about obedience, we're, we're, we're not talking about how we can be saved. We're talking about what we do because we are saved, because we are in a marriage, and these are our vows. And I know right now, to some of this, this just sounds like legalism, but not to God. See, what we might call legalism, you know what God calls it? He calls it love. Because this is God's love language. If you love me, you obey me. I'm going to let you in on something here. When I was a child, I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. I lived like a child. But the older I get, the more I'm starting to realize on our side of things what this whole thing is about. I remember several years ago, Doug Tages introduced us, our staff, to this uh, godly old man. For some reason, I remember him to be 
80 years old, and this was a guy that literally poured his life in Christ into countless people. And the staff was doing this roundtable discussion with this gentleman, and I remember I finally asked him this question. I said, if you could boil the whole Christian thing down to one word, what would it be? He didn't even flinch. He didn't even think about it. And he just said, obedience. And I remember Greg and I looked at each other, and we're just like, what? Like, really? When I was a child, I thought like a child. But then you grow up. And you start to realize that, that Eugene Peterson, too, is, is, is kind of right when he says it's, it, it's a long obedience in the same direction. It's the, the, the life of faith is this, is this faithful, obedient walk. It's, it's not about our emotions. It's not about having ecstatic, mystical experiences. It's not doing these extraordinary things like miracles or prophecy or casting out demons. It's a faithful, obedient walk. That's God talking. And this is Jesus talking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. He who obeys my Father. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine puts them into practice. It's like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Who hears and does them. You know how you tell the God of the universe that you love him? You tell him. And we could tell him What God's people did thousands of years ago at Mount Sinai told him when they said all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. What a thing to say to God at the start of 2014. God, all that you have spoken, we will do. God's looking for a partner. He's looking for a spouse and Today, people want all the goodies without the relationship. They want a God for me, a God who saves me and who helps me and protects me and provides for me and and gets me out of tough situations. And, And while he does all of that, it's a marriage and there are wedding vows. And I'll tell you what our world needs today. It doesn't need the parting of the Red Sea. It doesn't need plagues and signs and wonders. It needs what God always wanted, a people, a holy people, a holy nation that lives in the world declaring the praises of God. Let's pray. And God, I just pray by your grace and the power of the Holy Spirit in us and your word dwelling richly in us, God, that we would be a wife of noble character to you, God. And not one that brings shame to your name.
And while we always want the bells and the whistles and the experiences and all of this, God, you at the end of the day say, just love me. And the way you'll show that you love me is obey me. Obey me. Help us, God, in Jesus' name.